Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at Armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Hey, everybody, welcome to the Single Tracks Podcast. Today, I'm here with Greg and Aaron, and we're going to be talking about some of the mountain bike news from this week. Just a quick note this week, we meant to have two podcasts, but we screwed up the recording on one of them. So next week, we'll be back with a more regular schedule of two podcasts a week. Today, I want to start off by talking about the Red Bull Rampage. There's been some commentary online, basically starting with Brandon Terman's article on Vital MTB, uh, talking about the risk versus the reward for Red Bull athletes. And I wanted to hear what you guys thought, Aaron and Greg, about about what these athletes are risking and, and whether it's worth it. I think... The risk and the reward are both um, incredibly big in Red Bull Rampage, especially the risk. The writers have talked about pretty well just how absolutely insane the event is. You know, the riders are risking death, serious injury, paralysis, even in situations that aren't necessarily as insane as Rampage. Mountain bikers, especially on the pro level, are risking those things. Look at Martin Ashton. He got paralyzed, and he wasn't even you know, doing rampage. He was totally confident in what he was doing, and there's a fluke accident, and now he's paralyzed. So I think that's sort of always on the line, and no more so than rampage. Personally, I would never do that crap. You know, first, I can't do it. You know, I'm not that good of a rider. But secondly, you know, I've decided it's just not worth it for me. You know, when I was in high school, I thought pretty seriously about trying to become a pro skier and trying to take my skiing to that level, but eventually just shelved the idea because I was like, that's just too much pressure to perform. Um, right. Well, Greg, you said, you said it wouldn't be worth it to you. Is there any amount of money that would make it worth it to you? To me? No, I, it's, it's never, you know, riding has never been about the money for me. Um, but the issue is like, I just enjoy riding my bike even if I'm making millions, if that means like being on the sidelines six months a year or more because I'm injured, like I don't know if that's worth it. If I don't get to ride for that amount of time when I'm in recovery. So for me, I don't know. I I kind of shelved the entire idea of like being a pro athlete. I was like, you know, maybe I can enjoy these sports and still have a lot of fun, but not have to like risk life and limb. Uh, which I think sort of goes into something interesting. So, you know, I came to mountain biking from a downhill skiing background, um, and that was my big thing when I was growing up, and I still love it. But it's interesting to read some of these opinions about Red Bull Rampage, and the writers seem to say this is the gnarliest extreme sports event in existence. And while it's really tough, mountain biking is not nearly the most deadly extreme sport out there. You know, coming from a downhill skiing background, Downhill skiing is drastically more deadly than mountain biking. Downhill skiers are doing much larger stunts because you can move faster on skis and land bigger. I mean, they're doing 300-plus foot cliffs. They're doing backflips off of 150-foot cliffs. They're doing just absolutely insane stuff. And then in downhill skiing, you know, generally you might have a soft landing, but that it's never as soft as it would seem. 
but you add the avalanche factor on top, which really makes it truly deadly. You know, we've seen a number of high-profile deaths in mountain biking this year, especially with a recent EWS death. But every season, there are dozens of deaths in the backcountry due to avalanches, due to crashes in the downhill skiing world. I don't think like that means, oh, it's okay that Rampage isn't compensating these guys very much or isn't insuring them. But when you compare to other sports, mountain biking actually isn't all that deadly. Well, so that is one of the issues that was brought up in some of these articles is that the athletes just don't seem to be getting paid very well for this event. I think there was mention of some of the guys who are like fourth or fifth place in Rampage barely being able to take home any money after paying for their expenses for being out there. So what do you guys think about that? I, I think there definitely needs to be some sort of pay scale that, that at least covers the expenses of the riders and their their dig teams for the week. You know, kind of to go to go back to what Greg was talking about, you know, I, I think there definitely are more deaths in skiing than mountain biking and but you also have to it's a little bit different situation. You know, you're talking about this is a sponsored competition where riders are being judged. It, it's not just some guys out riding in the backcountry. So it's a little bit of a different situation. You know, Red Bull stands to make a lot of money for this, and that's not to say that they shouldn't make money, and it's not to say that they're not investing a lot of money to put this thing on. But I just think you look around and you see you see that there's all this money involved, but it's not necessarily going to the riders, and that's the riders are what make the event. You know, if you didn't have the riders, it would be pretty boring to watch a helicopter filming a hillside you know so i i think if you're invited to rampage because it's a as far as i know it's an invite only event i think there should be like okay you're invited to rampage and i don't know you get five thousand dollars or whatever just just for being there you know just for for showing up and then that allows you to spend two weeks in the desert and pay for hotel rooms and whatever else for your build crew that's there and then the prize money i think that could be stepped up i you know i think the prize purse the total purse is only somewhere around fifty thousand dollars maybe a little bit more than that so it's a hundred thousand dollar stat for this year but i think it's okay. stepped up quite a bit from last year so okay so yeah but i mean once you get out of those you know kind of like top three spots the money drops off really quickly and you know it is a competition and there are going to be winners and people who don't win but all these guys are doing insane stuff you know they're they're all risking their lives, and while you know maybe one guy backflipped this gap while another guy just aired it out, they're still putting their lives on the line, and I think the the pay should probably reflect that a little bit more than it does currently. I mean, one of the things that surprised me was that there wasn't any form of insurance for the athletes. You know, I've participated in putting on races and events, and every time you do that, you know, you pay insurance for the event. It's you know a few bucks a rider. And it supposedly covers your event. You still have waivers and all that that sort of stuff. But but you know, even a regular cross country race is going to have insurance. So, are you guys surprised, or or do you think something should change in terms of insurance for Red Bull Rampage? To me, it just doesn't make logical th- sense to put your body on the line, and you know, no matter how big the potential payout is, like you don't even have a guaranteed payout. So, especially if you crash, you're not going to place well and you're not going to make any money. And 
if you crash, you're likely going to incur thousands of dollars in medical expenses. And lots of these riders are coming from like overseas. They're coming from different countries, even Canada. And it's like insurance doesn't even work the same if you're not even in your home country. So that's nuts, kind of. With a so let's take professional football. I was just thinking about football versus Red Bull Rampage because lots of people have equated it to the Super Bowl of mountain biking. But the problem is these riders aren't making millions upon millions of dollars. You know, there's been plenty of coverage of brain injuries and ongoing issues from football. But the one thing that pro football teams can say is, oh, we've paid our players millions upon millions of dollars. So Right. And they have all sorts of trainers and all kinds of other medical trainers, people on staff. medical stuff, you know, and they do, you know, I'm sure they have decent medical insurance. So they're you know, even if they have to get sidelined after a year or two, they're probably set for life. But you can't say that for a free ride mountain biker. Well, they also have a players union in the NFL, which something I've kind of heard floated this week in a lot of the post rampage commentary is maybe the riders need to get together and form some sort of union. But you know, back to the insurance question, I just don't I know there's a event insurance, but as far as I know, that just covers the whoever's organizing the event from being sued by one of the participants. If you get hurt in a, your local cross country race, the event's insurance isn't going to pay your medical bills. I mean, that's up to you personally to have your medical bills covered. I mean, you could go back and try to sue the event and then that's why you have the insurance. But in terms of, you know, Red Bull providing some sort of health insurance for all participants, I just, I don't know who who you would even get to step up and cover that. Um, You know, Jeff and I talked about that this week and I mean, Red Bull would, they'd pretty much have to self-insure. They're not going to be able to get anybody to, to underwrite a policy for Red Bull Rampage. And that's not to say that they don't have the money to 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 do that. They definitely do. I mean, I think I looked and Red Bull's a $7 billion plus company. So they've got the money, but then it's also kind of setting a precedent for their other events that they do. You know, they, I mean, Red, as we all know, Red Bull puts on a ton of crazy events, not just in mountain biking, but, you know, any kind of extreme sport and, if they set a precedent that they're going to be ensuring their events and covering, you know, covering the healthcare expenses for people that are injured in their events, then they're going to have to start doing that across the board. And then maybe you'll see them doing less events. Right. Well, hopefully, and this is, this is me personally talking, but hopefully Red Bull does step up in the situation with Paul and takes care of him just to let the other athletes know that if something terrible does happen, that, you know, at least somebody's got your back. So I guess we'll see. Switching gears a little bit to another form of extreme mountain biking. We want to talk about mountain biking 14ers. We published a couple articles last week about mountain biking 14ers. And there's even a group calling itself Bike the 14ers that's going around Colorado attempting to bike all 18 of the 14ers. So a 14er, for those who don't know, is a mountain that's 14,000 feet or taller. And in Colorado, I believe there are 58 of them total. 
apparently there's some debate between either being 54 or 58. So depending on how you define what a separate peak is. Okay. So there are 58 of these 14ers in Colorado and 18 of them are bike legal, meaning they're not in a wilderness area or anything. But apparently there's been some controversy surrounding this whole idea of, of mountain biking on 14ers. So I wanted to talk a little bit about that. So I live in Colorado. I actually live in Chafee County, which is home to the most 14ers in any single county in the lower 48 states of the U.S. So I'm in 14er country and we have a lot of bike legal 14ers around where I live. So I've been keeping tabs on this supposed controversy with the bike the 14ers crew. But to begin, I don't even really understand why it's controversial. These riders are not doing anything that's illegal. They're riding sanctioned trails on bike legal 14ers outside of wilderness areas. So they're not breaking any laws, and these things are on the map. The supposed controversy comes via environmental activists that have stepped up and started run their mouths, essentially. And according to such activists, the three potential reasons that riding the 14ers are bad are environmental damage, specifically trail damage, disruption of wildlife, user conflicts with hikers, supposedly from higher speeds of mountain bikes on those 14ers, safety, dealing with primarily search and rescue on these dangerous mountain peaks. So those are the potential issues that the environmental activists see it. But again, I don't understand potentially you know, why there's this issue there. But a lot of environmental activists have been able to get in the papers and get in the media spouting their opinions. So, so it's been pretty controversial. So yeah, that's, that's pretty surprising, especially considering that these trails are bike legal and people have, in theory, been able to ride these trails for many, many years. The single tracks crew got a chance to ride down Pikes Peak, which is a, a 14er located just outside Colorado Springs. And I got to say, we had a blast. Honestly, I was a little scared at the beginning, but it was really, really a great ride. I would agree with you. I was scared. I was, I was nervous on the drive up, going up that road forever. And it's not like there's a lot of exposure on the drive, but there's just there's something kind of eerie about being that high up above the rest of the world. Yeah, Pikes Peak was just a fantastic experience. Absolutely loved that. I was a little bit nervous on the drive because I was in control. <laughs> I like to be in the driver's seat. Um, right. But I just love getting above treeline, too. It's the best place. If I could be above treeline every day, I would be stoked on that. Well, Pikes Peak is sort of unique in that it's one of, if not the only, 14ers that you can potentially do a shuttle to. So you could drive a car up and, and ride down. And it's also a pretty popular trail with hikers. So it should be said that we planned our trip to do it when there weren't going to be a lot of hikers coming on the trail because there's definitely potential for conflict there particularly with the high speeds of coming down off of a 14er. Right. Yeah. We did it on a Monday morning and even, um, you know, at the top, it wasn't so bad. We'd run into the occasional hiker, but when we got lower, I guess below elk camp. Yeah. Kind of below there. It was, it was dodging a lot of hikers, but as, as Jeff mentioned in his article, everybody was pretty friendly and more than willing to hop off the trail, even though in a lot of instances there was, plenty of room for for us to go around but yeah i found everybody to be be really friendly for the most part and uh it was just you know just the last couple miles weren't as fun because we did have to drag our brakes quite a bit to uh keep the speed in check through there yeah and the interesting thing is you know one of the arguments against mountain bikers on 14 years are potential user conflicts 
but arguably re-rode one of the most popular 14ers. I mean, Pikes Peak is one of the most accessible to a large population. You can drive to the top of it. You can access the trail from a bunch of points. You know, when we saw a lot of people was from people riding a cog rail up and then hiking down the trail. So we probably rode one of the most populated 14er trails and we didn't really have any user conflicts whatsoever. Right. And so then a few weeks later, you actually rode a much less well-known 14er, Mount Antero. How was that? Antero is pretty fantastic. Uh, it had been on my to-do list for about two years now, ever since moving to Slida. And I can see Antero from my house. So I was like scoping the, the routes. I was like, oh man, I can make that happen. So uh, differently from what we did with Pikes Peak, I actually rode up Antero. So our ascent was about an eight-mile climb to the summit. We climbed about 5,000 feet in that eight miles. So it was a, it was a chore getting up there. We, the way we ascended, we had a four by four road up most of the way, but then eventually, you know, you always get to, except for Pikes Peak and Evans, generally speaking, you get to like a scramble or really technical section up top. And at first we were like, oh, we're going to haul our bikes to the top. So we get our bikes to the top of this 14er. We hit this scramble section and we got to the point where we're like, I don't know if it's even physically possible or a good idea for us to haul our bikes up. So since we weren't part of the bike the 14ers crew and it, we weren't going to get anything out of actually getting our bike to the top of it we just decided to ditch them so we ditched our bikes at 13,600 feet and then climbed about the last 700 feet to the 14,269 foot summit so honestly like even if more people start mountain biking 14ers like i don't think they're gonna many people are gonna get their bikes to the top of those things I mean, we considered hauling our bikes to the top. We could have slung them on our shoulders and done it. But looking at the trail, like we would have carried our bikes the last half mile or so, three quarters of a mile to the summit, and then carried them back down three quarters of a mile to where we eventually left them. So we wouldn't have gained any awesome descending out of that. One of the people that's vocally against mountain bikers, biking 14ers that got quoted in the Denver paper said, oh, now that the Bike the 14ers crew is promoting this, we're going to have mountain bikers flocking from all over the nation to come ride on our 14ers, and it's going to just be madhouse. But this person obviously has no idea how hard it is to get up a 14er. Like, even on foot, it's, like, friggin' tough. And then you <laughs> add a bike in the situation, that really only makes it harder. <laughs> right. So I don't think we're going to see... Very many people all like going up 14ers on their bikes. And it's interesting to note that the ride, the 14ers crew, ostensibly their plan was to do all 18 of the 14ers this year, but it looks like they only got four or five of them done. I am not sure if they accomplished their goal or not. Um, I did read an article just recently from the Wall Street Journal saying that they had all but one done and they were going to do the next one the weekend after the published date in the article. So <laughs> there was... Yeah, surrounding this controversy, the bike of the 14ers crew got uh, directly in touch with the Forest Service. And uh, based on reports, the Forest Service asked them to stop publicizing their adventure. So they weren't doing anything illegal, but the Forest Service asked them to hold off on publicizing. Based on an Instagram post I saw from Bike the 14ers about a week or two ago, they're going to start releasing info from their journey. So it's possible they did complete their goal. Uh, but I'm not 100% sure if they did. Oh, uh, okay. I was confused on that point as well, though. I'm so I'm still not 100% sure. Uh, I'd be interested to find more info on that, but it seems like 
the Forest Service has levied some sort of embargo against that information. Hmm. No, I don't think they actually have power to do that. But. Right. right. <laughs> so speaking of writing up and then down ridiculous descents, is there such a thing as a do-all mountain bike? Chris Daniels posted an article last week about the idea of a do-all mountain bike, and it's something that the industry has definitely tried to sell to a lot of people, the idea that there is a bike that can do it all from climbing to descending. Do you guys think that, that that's true? Is there such a thing as a do-all mountain bike? Yes. It's the one that's sitting in your garage right now. <laughs> I kind of had an opinion piece about this earlier, but it's it's definitely, and we've all heard this before, it's definitely more about the rider than it is the bike. But you can ride within a certain reason, I guess. You can ride any bike anywhere. I mean, as you know, Greg's article on Antero showed, I mean, his buddy that rode with him was on a rigid single speed, mm-hmm. you know, and he rode up and down a 14,000 foot mountain on a rigid single speed, you know, will you be able to go as fast on the descents? No, probably not. Would you have as much fun going down, you know, on a rigid single speed as you would on a six inch full suspension? No, probably not, but you can do it, you know? So is there a bike that is going to be, you know, as Chris said in his article, there's a direct quote. He said, there's not currently, nor will there ever be a do everything, no compromise mountain bike. And I think the real takeaway from that is the no compromise part. And that, that that's just the thing. I mean, any bike is always going to have trade-offs. There's always going to be some sort of compromise. If you have a 20-pound carbon hardtail race bike, that's going to be really awesome for racing. But maybe some of the compromises you make are it's not going to be super comfortable for long days in the saddle. You know, it's probably very stiff. It's going to beat you up. Probably got really aggressive, fast handling geometry. So it's not going to be the best bike to take on really long descents. If it's a race bike, you're probably not going to have a dropper post on it. So, you know, it's going to be another thing that'll kind of limit your ability to fully exploit the bike on the downhills. But, you know, there's, there's always compromises. And then the other end of the spectrum, you have a, you know, 160 millimeter travel trail bike. It can ride damn near anything, but is it going to do great in a cross-country race? No, because it weighs the better part of 30 pounds and has you know, six-plus inches of travel. So there's always going to be compromises. But, I mean, the bikes are bikes are so good now. And if you get if you get a trail bike in the even on the lower end of the spectrum, if the bike has really good geometry from 120 millimeter to 150 or 160 millimeter, you can build a really awesome bike that's going to be a reasonable weight and that you can ride everywhere. You know, you could put it into race duty if you really wanted to. I mean, obviously if you're doing like an entire cross country series, a 140 mil travel bike is probably not going to be your go-to weapon. But if you're doing the occasional cross country race and just doing general trail rides and maybe even want to hit up a bike park once or twice a season, you know, I I think there definitely are bikes that can fit that bill. Yeah, I definitely agree with Aaron on how great bikes are these days. But I guess going back to what he said about compromise, like I think that's a critical issue right here. Bike companies are never going to say, oh, our bike compromises on this in order to provide you this other bit of handling prowess. You know, They always want to say, oh, our bike can do this great and that great and this great, but they're not talking about the compromise. So I think whenever we tweak something in general, we're going to make a compromise somewhere. 
even if that compromise is just our wallets. So we've got to think about the compromise. I'm trying to suss out what bike I want for my next rig, and the two bikes in between are both incredibly similar. The only difference would be about 20 millimeters of travel and a little bit of tweaking on the geometry. And that's it. The, those are the only differences between the two bikes I could potentially send myself riding for the next year. But even with those small differences, like I'm going to be making a compromise either way. If I go 160, I'm going to be hauling a little bit more weight, a little bit slacker, not going to be as pedally. If I go 140, you know, when I get into the massive burl that I might experience, say, riding a 14er, it's not going to be as capable as the 160. So there's always going to be a trade-off. And it's just a matter of weighing those compromises and deciding you know, what's most important to you. Okay, so we agree that there's no such thing as a no-compromise mountain bike. But what's the bike for you guys that has gotten the closest to that? I've ridden, I mean, honestly, a lot of bikes out there are going to be great for most everything, especially in like the long travel trail bike and enduro bike scene. So if you've got a full suspension modern mountain bike with 140 millimeters to 160 millimeters of travel, you're going to be able to do a heck of a lot on that bike. In general, I tend to trend towards wanting more downhill performance. So on the 160 millimeter end, uh, there's a ton of bikes that can do just about everything. I just rode the Intense Tracer 275 Carbon, which was absolutely fantastic. And there are a lot of other bikes like that, but that one I think edges out all the other 6-inch travel enduro bikes in uphill performance and and downhill performance as well and not really compromising as little as possible. So that was pretty fantastic. If you're talking about truly doing absolutely everything that you can possibly do on a bicycle, I don't think you can look at it without looking at a fat bike. So the one bike I've ridden that could truly be your one cribber, do-it-all bike. If you live in a place where it snows some of the time and you want to ride 12 months a year, is a full suspension fat bike, honestly. Specifically, the Turner King Con. So there's only a couple of full suspension fat bikes on the market, but the Turner King Con is the longest travel one available with 120 millimeters of travel. So you have the fat bike tires that can go on snow, can go on soft surfaces. Then you have suspension that helps you in the technical stuff, and it's not very heavy. It's still pedalable. It's only got a four-inch tire. I mean, you could do as close to everything as possible on that bike. So. Man. You stole my answer. That's what I was going to say. I mean, oh, no. I mean, I, th- I think it's true, though, that full suspension fat bike, you know, you could you could even swap out a pair of plus-size tires, 29-plus, on your full suspension fat bike, a lot of them. I don't know about the Turner specifically, but, but yeah, you get more of a cross-country type feel with that bike with 29er tires on it. Yeah, for me, the closest you can get is is definitely a full suspension fat bike. You know, we talked about like, oh, it'd be better to have one $6,000 bike or like three $2,000 bikes. And sometimes, you know, like kind of weigh those pros and cons. I would probably rather have like a standard trail bike and a dedicated fat bike. But if I had to combine those two together, boom, full suspension fat bike. Just like Greg said, I'm kind of skew more towards that downhill performance on my bikes you know that's why my my personal bike is a Kona process 153 and that's i always tell people that's the most fun bike i've i've ever owned um at least so far and you know the trade-off of that is it's you know it's a bit heavy it comes in around 31 pounds 
not the lightest thing and it's not the most fun to pedal up some of the really steep climbs we've got but man i tell you what when you're pointing that thing downhill it's it's all worth it so it's 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 what you're willing to compromise on as a rider and for me more and more that's i'm willing to compromise you know a little bit in the weight department and maybe a little bit on its climbing prowess just to have that ability to go as fast downhill as i possibly can you know apart from the process that i have some of the other bikes that i've ridden that are just great all around do it all mountain bikes uh the the da vinci troy was a really good one that's a 150 bike front and rear you know i rode the the top spec full carbon frame and that that thing was just a beast it's super stout frame good geometry not slack but not uber slack i had a lot of fun on that bike the rocky mountain altitude rally edition is along that same vein but even a little little burlier i believe it's got a 160 front and 150 rear the rally edition has a really burly part spec um you know it's got the it's got a fox 36 up front it's got the float x shock in the rear it's got stands flow ex wheel set on it so it's a big beefy bike but all carbon frame so it probably weighs in the high 20s i would think and then the intense carbine 29er was a another great ride one it's a 29er with 160 up front and adjustable in the rear from 125 to 140 and that's a i had a lot of fun on that bike too it's a great great all-arounder man so many great bikes so little time thanks for joining me guys it's been fun again and Check back with us later this week for another fun podcast. Peace.